Our second reading, three passages from the Gospel of John. I will first read John 17, 1 through 5, and then I will read John 20, verses 30 and 31, and then I will read John 21, verse 25. They should appear magically on the screen. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing you may have life in his name. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what the author of the Gospel of John writes at chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And I want you to understand how unusual that statement is. John, the author of the Gospel, steps out of his role as a narrator. He breaks the scene. He steps back and he talks to his readers directly. And he reveals his motivations for writing his book. Authors don't normally do this. Authors normally remain invisible behind the scenes. They want you to think they are presenting you uh, the unvarnished truth as objective observers. But John tells us that his gospel is not a neutral account. It is not a disinterested reporting of certain facts. John has an agenda. He has written these things, quote... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, truth be told, every writer, every speaker, every filmmaker has an agenda when they take up the pen, when they open their mouths, when they roll their cameras. They don't want to draw attention to their agenda because that somehow detracts from the objectivity, from the power of their words and images, but that agenda is always there. Imagine for a moment 
What would happen if people revealed their agendas before they spoke or before you read their words? You receive a sonnet in the mail. And on it, there's a post-it note which reads, I've got the hots for you, toots, and I hope this love poem makes you want to go out with me. You watch a political advertisement on television in which a presidential candidate details all of the defects of the opponent. The candidate then comes on the screen and says, I hope you believe what I've said about old so-and-so because I'll be really unhappy if I don't get to be the ruler of the free world. You spend two hours with a financial planner who finally convinces you to invest your entire retirement nest egg into his firm. And just before you sign on the dotted line, he says, I'm sure glad that you believed my sales pitch because you sure are going to make me a lot of money. The fact that John reflects on and tells us about his motivation in writing his gospel is very unusual. He's very straightforward in what he's doing. He's very self-aware about what he's doing. And I want us to keep our his motivations in our minds as we work our way through this gospel. Today we begin a series of sermons on the gospel of John. We'll be preaching on John about 58 weeks. We're going to work our way carefully week by week through this book. And as we do, I want you to remember that John has written these words, the words that are in his gospel, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, if you don't already believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, you may find yourself believing before we're done with the Gospel of John. And if you do get around to believing that Jesus is who he says he is because of this Gospel, I want you to know that John told you right up front that this is what he's hoping that you will do. John makes a second observation about the writing of his Gospel that is also unusual and that is uh, insightful. It's the last sentence of the gospel, and it reads this way. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Now, that might seem like an obvious point to you, but it is an important point. The Bible contains four gospels, and... The gospel as a literary genre is a curious thing. It's a kind of a cross between a straightforward history and a religious biography. There's been lots of scholarly discussion about where this genre came from in the ancient world. But the point that I want to make here and the point that John makes in his final sentence of this gospel is that the gospel does not tell us everything about Jesus. It doesn't tell us everything that happened in the life of Jesus. He lived 33 years. It doesn't even tell us everything that John knew about Jesus. John and Jesus 
were pretty much together nonstop for three years. What you get in a gospel, really what you get in any literary work, is a kind of greatest hits or highlights. And those greatest hits and those highlights are selected by the author for a particular purpose. And John has told us what his purpose is, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life through him. Now this might seem like a really small and unimportant point, but I want us to grasp it clearly because there are a number of problems that arise in biblical interpretation when we fail to keep this point in mind. And I want to mention two problems. And they're two opposite problems. First, we can become too curious about what the text doesn't say and we can be tempted then to add to it ideas that are from our own imagination. Okay, so we like what Scripture says, but we wish it would say more, and so we add to it. We all love Jesus. We find Him endlessly fascinating, and so we naturally want to know more about Him. What was His growing up like? What kind of things did He make when He was a carpenter? When did He realize that God and not Joseph was His Father? Did He get along with His brothers and sisters? Did He ever have a girlfriend? What games did he like to play? What did he look like? Was he left-handed? Could he whistle? There are a thousand questions we could ask about Jesus if he were to be interviewed on a talk show. Questions that we would love to have answered. But the Bible is silent on many of these things. And our curiosity about these things has led some people to fill in the details with their own imaginations. There were a bunch of other so-called gospels that were written in the centuries immediately following the life of Jesus. Some of these so-called gospels, um, these non-canonical gospels, might contain true Details regarding the life of Jesus. There's a document called the Infancy uh, Gospel of Thomas. And it tells uh, a number of stories about other miracles that were supposedly performed by Jesus while Jesus was a child. Including this story about Jesus making birds out of clay and then animating them. And the birds fly up in the air. He does this to amuse his friends. This story, by the way, gets picked up in the Quran. Uh, which was composed 600 years after Jesus lived. Well, did that event really happen? Maybe. It's possible. But none of the apostles mention it. And John in his gospel, in chapter 2, verse 11, seems to tell us that Jesus' first miracle was changing water into wine at the wedding in Cana. I suspect... And this is the word of Dan, this is not the word of God. I suspect that most of the early non-canonical gospels, documents that show up around 150 to 300 years after Jesus, that they were written by pious, well-meaning Christians who just wanted more stories about Jesus. Maybe stories that they could tell to the kids. 
Every Christmas, thousands of children in thousands of churches put on Christmas pageants. And those pageants regularly have biblical characters saying and doing things that don't actually show up in the Bible. I remember very clearly Anna Fluter playing the Virgin Mary a couple of years ago. And she had these very funny lines that she performed so well. But none of those lines were actually in the Bible. We understand, of course, the difference between the Bible and stories about uh, Bible characters. And I think that's the way that we need to think of most of these early non-canonical Gospels. Well-meaning stories written by pious people who loved Jesus enough to want to tell more stories about him, even if they had to make those stories up. Now, there is a later batch of so-called Gospels that try to fill in the gaps in our knowledge about the historical Jesus, and these seem to have a very different motivation from the early ones. One very successful 19th century gospel is the Book of Mormon, which has the subtitle, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. It was first published in 1830. The Book of Mormon uh, purports to give uh, about a thousand years of history of uh, Native Americans, Indians living in, in the United States and in South America, who, as it turns out, were are in fact Jews who somehow got from Israel over to the New World. I, I'm not sure how. And then Jesus, after his resurrection, goes to the Americas to visit with them uh, and to proclaim his gospel. Um, you might remember in John 10, 16, Jesus says, I have sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. According to Joseph Smith, those other sheep were North American Indians, and Jesus went to visit them after his resurrection. So curiously, on the title page of the original edition of the Book of Mormon, it states its purpose as, quote, convincing the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, end quote, which is precisely John's purpose in writing the Gospel of John. John, of course, had the advantage of having actually lived with Jesus for three years, while Joseph Smith finds his new Gospel written on tablets of gold. Uh, He digs it up in an Indian mound in upstate New York. The gold tablets later disappear. In 1908, there was a fellow from California named Levi Dowling who published a book called The Aquarian Gospel, of Jesus the Christ, a book that has been the basis of much of the New Age thinking of the past hundred years. This book tells us about what Jesus was doing in the 18 years between the time he got separated from his parents uh, at the temple at age 12 to the time he begins his ministry at age 30. According to Dowling, Jesus during those 18 years was traveling in the world. And he was uh, in Egypt and Persia and India and Tibet where he was collecting the wisdom of the ancient masters. And yes, the corny 1969 song by the Fifth Dimension, This is the Dawning of the Age of Aquarius, is based on Dowling's book. The Book of Mormon 
and the Aquarian gospel of Jesus the Christ, and by the way, there's a whole bunch more of these kinds of books, are much more insidious than the early non-canonical gospels. These later works are clear attempts to trade on the name of Jesus to introduce new philosophies and new theologies that are entirely alien to the historic teachings of the church. So the first problem with not recognizing that the Gospels don't tell us everything about Jesus is that we get too curious about what it doesn't say. And we're tempted to add to it ideas from our own imagination. The second problem is actually kind of the opposite. The second problem with not recognizing that the Gospels don't tell us everything about Jesus is that we might think that the Gospels contain everything that Jesus taught and so we disregard the other parts of the Scriptures. We find an early form of this error in the teachings of Marcion, of Sinope, He's writing in the middle of the 2nd century, and by the early 3rd century, he's been formally rejected by the church as a heretic. Marcion threw out most of Scripture because he thought that followers of Jesus only needed the words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. A modern version of this error is found today among a group of people who call themselves red-letter Christians. Maybe you've seen editions of the Bible where the words of Jesus are printed in red letters. And so red letter Christians are folks who accept the words of Jesus as the foundation of their faith. And they regard all the other parts of the Bible as second class or as optional reading. Being a red letter Christian sounds great until you realize that many of the basic Christian doctrines are not contained in the red-letter portions of Scripture. The virgin birth, for example, is not found in the red letters. Jesus never said, I was born of a virgin. We learn that from Matthew and from Luke and from John. Salvation by grace through faith is not found in the red letters. Jesus never says, you are saved by grace through faith. We find that out from the writings of Peter and Paul. Jesus as the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world is not found in the red letters. Jesus never says that. We learned that from John the Baptizer. Now, Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the mind of God. And the totality of what Jesus wants us to know is not contained in the red letters alone. It is revealed throughout the scriptures by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the words of many women and men whose words are recorded for us in the pages of the Bible. Not just the red letters alone. Keep this in mind. Jesus intentionally chose 12 apostles. And they lived with him nonstop for three years. And then the resurrected Jesus met with and instructed the apostle Paul. Jesus taught these individuals closely and carefully in those encounters. And the Holy Spirit was given to those individuals to bring to mind all of the things that Jesus had taught them. And some of the things that Jesus taught are captured in the red letter portions of the scripture, like the Sermon on the Mount. But, not all. You remember the Great Commission. 
Jesus' final charge to the disciples before he ascends into heaven. He says, go therefore and make disciples of uh, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you is more than just the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was actually the easy stuff. It was the seeker-friendly sermon. Jesus taught his disciples a lot more things than just that. And Jesus' plan for the church, which is also Jesus' plan for the world, is that his teachings would be deposited with the apostles and that they would transfer those teachings to the world at large. Jesus said and taught a whole lot more than just what shows up in the red letters in the gospel. Which is why the author of the gospel of John reminds us, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now I realize that it's a little odd to begin a sermon series on a gospel by reflecting upon comments that the author makes about his own gospel. But I think these comments are helpful and that we need to keep them in mind as we work our way through this gospel. First, John's purpose in writing the gospel is so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Perhaps the most famous verse from the whole of scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John wants us to know Jesus. He wants us to understand who this Jesus is. He wants us to believe in Jesus so that we might have eternal life. And second, John shows remarkable self-awareness by pointing out that he's not telling us everything that Jesus ever said or did. It's not possible to say everything, but he's telling us what is needed for his purpose, that we might believe and have life in Jesus. We should never expect Scripture to do what it can't do, to give us answers to every question that we might be curious about, the way that the writers of other so-called Gospels have done. We should be content with the silence of Scripture, The Bible, for example, does not tell us what Jesus was doing from age 12 to age 30. And we need to trust that if the scriptures are silent on that point, that that point is not necessary for our relationship with God. Question number three of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, What do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer offered is, The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The scriptures don't teach everything, but the things that it does teach are absolutely important. And we also should never shortchange scripture by making the mistake that some parts of the Bible are less truly the word of God than other parts, the way the Marcionites did the way the red letter Christians do. Second Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, 
All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is a unity because the mind of God is not divided. We use scripture to interpret scripture looking for a unified, coherent point of view. Next week, we will begin with a bang by looking at the prologue of the gospel of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I'm excited to be going through this amazing gospel with you. And I do encourage you to read through that whole gospel. You can do it in about an hour. What you will meet in this gospel is... Jesus. And the reality of Jesus is like an iceberg. It is huge and it is massive and nine-tenths of it are hidden from view. And what John's gospel does is to show us more and more of the reality of Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus is Lord and he wants us to understand why he loved him so dearly and so deeply And though he hasn't written each and everything that he ever heard Jesus say or saw Jesus do, what John writes in his gospel is enough to blow our minds. It is enough that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. My prayer for us is that the Lord would add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we bless your name because you are from everlasting to everlasting. And from everlasting to everlasting, your son was present with you and is with you in all of eternity. Lord Jesus, we know that you are in heaven at this moment interceding on our behalf before the Father. We pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would watch over us, that you would be with us. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we dig into your gospel, that we might see your face more uh, richly and deeply, that we might understand your grandeur and your glory. Lord, I pray that the truth of your spirit, uh, uh, of your word, might be revealed to our spirit. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.